Hello, fellow innovators. This is Patrick Emmons. And this is Shelly Nelson. Welcome to the Innovation and the Digital Enterprise Podcast, where we interview successful visionaries and leaders, giving you an insight into how they drive and support innovation within their organizations. Today, we're welcoming Eric Rempel to the show. Eric is Redwood Logistics Chief Innovation Officer. As CIO, he is focused on developing diverse solutions and services for the company's clients. Prior to becoming CIO in 2017, Eric served as Redwood's Chief Technology Officer, where he played a vital role in the creation of what would become one of Redwood's flagship products, its proprietary transportation management system that combines historical analytics, market data, and operational best practices. And before joining Redwood Logistics, Eric founded 3P Logic in 2009, which is known today as Redwood Supply Chain Solutions. From 2010 to 2015, under Eric's leadership, Redwood SCS grew exponentially with over 8,000% advancement. The company's achievement in developing customer-facing solutions and supply chain technology was recognized when Redwood earned a number three rating on Crane's Fast 50 list for 2016. Eric is a thought leader and national speaker on advanced technologies such as API-led architecture, cloud computing, supply chain integration and automation, big data analytics and emerging technologies. He holds a BS in computer engineering and mathematics from the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign. Welcome to the show, Eric. Hey, Shelly and Patrick, thank you for having me. Eric, if you don't mind, can you share with our listeners a little bit more about Redwood Logistics? Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, so Redwood is now a 20-year-old company that lives at the intersection of uh, logistics and technology. Uh, we got our start as a traditional freight brokerage, uh, of which there's you know several great competitors in the Chicago area, uh, where we buy and sell capacity in the marketplace for shippers looking to you know move their freight. Uh, but we've evolved over the years to really leverage data and technology to not only transform how we run as a business. But also, we built out a uh, platform as a service, as an integration platform for our customers to give them a way to digitally transform their supply chains and, and find a lot of value, whether it's on our tech side or on our logistics side. Uh, and we kind of bridge uh, that gap and, and aim to give our customers the best of both worlds. One of the things that we I always hear about Redwood, people who work there currently, people who work with you, people who have left and moved on, is something that the, the culture at Redwood is, is something a little bit unique not just specifically for the the industry that you live in, but overall, uh, there's a, a real sense of purpose, uh, but at the same time, joy. Uh, a lot of people, they're excited to be there. What are some of the things that, you know, from an innovation standpoint, uh, the culture's got to be a critical element of that, of, of creating an environment where experimentation exists. You know, what are some of the things that you've seen that have been, you know, best practices from your experience in, in developing that type of culture? You know, there's there's two ways to look at it. Um, I think it's you know fair for every business to look at this pre-pandemic and and you know hopefully soon post-pandemic or, or whatever the the new future holds. But you know, it's a world where we believe in each other, we're honest with each other. Um, you know, you have an ability to to make mistakes, but you know, we're still ninety percent remote. Um, we've done great remotely. Um, you know, and and now. It's a matter of how do we take what was and, and still is a culture of teamwork, of respect, of you know giving 110%, you know having fun, um, and, and bringing that 
back into this hybrid world of, of work from home. And, you know, as you know, hopefully, you know, the, the vaccines take hold and, and people can make it back in a way to, you know, continue that in the office and, and, and whatever the new normal will be. So, you know, ha- having said that part, and that's still a journey that, that we're going down as our, I would, I would argue, almost every business out there, um, we want to make sure that we keep what we had before, which is um, accountability and the ability to, you know, learn and make mistakes. Um, there's a great book by Daniel Pink called Drive, where he talks about, you know, the three factors towards, you know, fulfillment in the workplace are mastery, autonomy, and purpose. Um, you know, and mastery is, you know, the Malcolm Gladwell, you know, 10,000 hour rule. Autonomy is, you know, here's clear instructions on what you're, what you're doing and you're left alone to get it done. Uh, and then purpose, which is why am I doing this, right? Is it, is it, is it for, for profit? Is it for something bigger? Is it for my family? But as people find that, I think, you know, our culture really lends itself well towards enabling people to find their purpose and their mission as they, you know, either come into work or or log on every day. Does that make it difficult to hire, Eric? You know, I I, I don't don't know that it does because that excitement level is is pervasive in the hiring process, right? And we're looking for that excitement. We're looking for for folks who are, are eager to you know, learn something new or extend upon the skills that they already know and bring it to the company, you know, and have that attitude of finding a way, you know, and really when we do interview, that's what we're looking for, which is, you know, can you self-start? Can you, you know, handle, you know, challenges on your own? Can you communicate with your peers? And I think now more than ever, that is the important characteristic of, of what we're looking for in people. So I'd argue that, you know, it's only as difficult as the quality of candidates who want to live in a, in a culture where, you know, find a way is, is a, an unwritten rule within Redwood. The autonomy part of that with uh, Daniel Pink's book and, and to Shelley's point, finding people who can live in the opaque, I think is, is a challenge. And I think it's getting harder just because I, I do think these are personality traits, but also experience traits of like being put in situations where mom and dad didn't come fix it. And I mean that not just in a mom and dad sense, but in a proverbial sense of like, I throw out my hands and it's, I, this is not what I'm paid for. Uh, so is there things that you're doing when you're vetting candidates to find people who are comfortable being uncomfortable? Cause that's, that's part of what you're talking about is, you know, in the military, they use the term, the officer's intent, right? Like we're, what is it that you need done, not how to do it? And then to find people who enjoy that autonomy, that individual accountability. Is it something that you do during the interviewing process that you think helps suss that out or identify it as one of the, because it seems like that would be a very big core value for your group. Yeah. You know, I, I think that what we really aim to do is, you know, we have a, we have a, a wide range of skill sets across, you know, our, our team and, you know, depending on, on the role who interviews a, a potential candidate, but, you know, personally, I know that, you know, one thing is we, we not, not in a mean way, right. But we try to scare people off because the reality is, you know, you have to be a self-starter. You have to, you know, know what's right. You need to know how to manage not only downward, but also upward to communicate when you don't feel that you're getting the information you need to successfully complete the mission. And so, you know, finding that balance, I'd argue, and and what we look for is that combination of, you know, get it done attitude with, you know, respect for, you know, making sure that we're all rowing the same direction in the boat. 
you know, a lot of people can feel, and, and, you know, these analogies are overused, but, you know, a lot of people can feel that, you know, they're accomplishing something simply because they're rowing, not realizing they're going in the wrong direction. So I, I think that, you know, being, being a, a candidate that is looking to say, like, I want to listen more than I talk, but at the same time, when I need to talk, I can effectively communicate what needs to happen when I see something, you know, potentially going in that wrong direction. So to, to answer your question directly, what do we do? I think we just try to be human in the interview process and not go through, you know, the standard wire manual covers round questions and, and things like that, but more of the, um, hey, things will get real like they do in the real world. And how do you find yourself able to communicate when things are rough? And, you know, and sometimes people struggle when things are good too. They feel like, you know, what do I do? I, I feel not challenged or I feel worried when I'm not putting out fires. Well, that's a good thing, you know, and, and finding that kind of balance in your life as well. So that's really what we're, what we're trying to do is just look at people as humans and say, how, how can he or she really find uh, comfort in communicating what they're seeing? That's really interesting because Patrick and I um, recently had the CEO from 1871 on the podcast. And she said, one of the questions that she likes to ask candidates is, do you consider yourself lucky? Um, and that really goes to show, do you credit everything that you've done to kind of your own, you know, owning your own destiny? Or have you had mentors? Have you had people that have helped you be successful um, along the way? Yeah, that's a fascinating question. I mean, I, I truthfully, I'm, I'm thinking about that right now in my head and, and how I'd answer it. And I always like to think that I'm very lucky from my background and my parents immigrating to this country and, you know, having insane amount of luck that I wasn't born in the Soviet Union, you know, and on that part, it's totally true. And I think it's just that balance of, you know, giving it your all. Um, and no matter what you do, when you have luck knocking at your door, right, you still have to work hard to, to make use of it. I, I do think that's a, a profound question in a couple of ways. One, do you appreciate what you have as part of that question, right? Like, are, do you do you see the value, right? Or are you always kind of working what you're not getting. Yeah, I think that's the struggle, right? That's the, uh, what do the Stokes say? I want I want what I have, right? And, and finding that as, as an anchor for some for some peace in your life. But I think I've gone a little, a little deep on us here today. I, I Actually, I think that's what we're here for. Yeah, fair enough. You know, our job is to change perspectives, right? Uh, to give people a different insight. You know, you've accomplished a lot and people want to, People want to know, right? Like, how do you see things? Especially as a chief innovation officer, it's, it's you know, there's a natural uh, contrarian vision that's required, right? We've talked about this a couple of times in that, you know, tell me what isn't going to work. You mentioned the Stoics and, you know, the the, uh, the Obstacle is the Way is a, a great book for, for people who want to get an understanding of, like, if you can keep your wits when everyone else loses theirs. And to understand to be a contrarian, uh, it doesn't mean you have to always be contrarian, but you have to be a contrarian, right? Of like, what's everybody else doing? And I'm going to look at the other way. So I do think some of that's, you know, um, the contrarian viewpoint is a big part of like your DNA. And so, uh, one of the phrases you use, and I, I think you've credited a mentor is like, uh, you know, don't drink the wine before it's time. Uh, and, and so explain that, explain that philosophy and, and how you know, Timing, uh, timing is always a critical component, especially in strategy, uh, and then the contrarian view and, and how all that kind of plays together for you. 
Yeah, I mean, right, that's the story of the innovator's life, right, which is you can see, you know, the forest uh, is right in front of you. And then, you know, just listening to people's problems, you're like, oh, you need to go two miles north, one mile left, there's going to be a pond, right? And then on the other side is utopia. And everyone looks at like you like you're a lunatic, which, you know, to some degree you are. But, um, you know, I, I think that the wine before its time analogy has has held true, you know, my you know, career here at Redwood for 17 years is we've had answers, you know, and, and some of my other partners and I have, have seen where we believe the industry is going, what people want to do with data to be specific, right? How networks can combine to create, you know, hubs of value for organizations, how data can be shared, you know, and, but, you know, wine before its time. And so, you know, trying to find ways, whether it's the market isn't ready for it, or we don't have an execution plan, or we don't have, you know, the technology ready yet. But, you know, the, the feeling of that is, you know, you can completely see that, you know, electric cars are the future, and they have this ability to drive themselves, and uh, they can become robo-taxis, and, and you see this vision so clearly of what the world can look like, and then you pitch it to your audience who, you know, is accountable for either giving you money, you know, for building it, or, or as revenue, and they're like, what's electricity? Right. And so, you know, you're, you're like, oh, darn it. You know, I, I went too far. Right. And so you thought it was a moonshot and you aimed for Pluto. So, you know, that is something that just over time, it's, you know, the curbing of your enthusiasm to say, all right, you know, have I socialized this enough to, you know, to grandma and to others who, you know, don't speak my industry, don't speak the language of tech. And then, you know, let's assume that you believe it is the right thing to do. You know, and the next step is, well, you're likely doing something that hasn't been done before, at least not the way in which that you intend to use it for your organization or whatever you're trying to build. And then you have to figure out, well, how do I do this, right? You know, and forgetting things like, you know, agile methodologies and all that, those, those great things, when you know where you're going, it's that little bit of, you know, pushing others to see a vision and setting that vision so that, you know, everyone, you know, going back to rowing, right? Everyone knows that we're generally going north and you set some guiding principles, um, even though you don't exactly know how you're going to get there. But back to, you know, purpose, right? You give people purpose and to clarity as to what we're doing and why we're doing it, even if they can't see the thing that we're trying to build. Um, and that's a really tough balance, right? Because you're evangelizing, you're motivating, you're walking, you're talking people off of ledges, and sometimes you're eating your hat, right? Sometimes you pitch things and you're just like, no one got it. And that's okay. And it's led to you know several stressful moments in my career where I've seen things as clearly as you know as as water, and you know others didn't feel that it was a time, and, and you have to respect them because if you're constantly going to push and never let back, well, you're going to alienate yourself as well. So it's it's this dance between innovation and you know psychology and camaraderie, and then you know when you feel that balance that everyone's ready for it. Um, that's when you strike and you strike fast because that window of opportunity closes pretty quickly. How long did it take for you to get that balance? Oh, I'm still seeking it. I mean, you know, it's it's just getting better. But I, I'm, you know, I'm always on the journey, but I'm never at the destination because every time, you know, I, there's a saying I have with a few of my coworkers, right, that we should write a book called, uh, pardon my French, but it gets shit done when you don't know what you're doing. And, you know, it's really this you know, the journey always gets clearer. You just never arrive at a destination. I think uh, 
that concept of like it looks when you look back on it, it looks like there was a plan, right? Like it looks like there were, it looks like I knew what I was doing there. It wink, was wink, not to see my pants, right? And there's, I mean, and I think there's a little bit of like uh, hero worship that goes into some of these stories of like we saw this and we knew that. And it's like no, you didn't. No, you know, you know a lot of things. You know, you know what you know is you know pain points, right? And can you take you know, a giant Venn diagram of all these different pain points and then be like, we should invest our time and energy and money into this region of these pain points, right? And then as you do it, you know, you discover something else new. And that, that's a really hard part about innovation is, you know, you you have an answer that is a blanket statement answer to what you're doing. But as soon as you open up the hood to whatever you're building, Right. There's all these other moving pieces that require just as much attention or, you know, the whole thing could, could fail. So I, I think being being honest about, you know, not just to yourself, but to your peers that like, hey, we know, you know, Pareto's principle always holds true. Right. We, we know that 80 percent, you know, we know the 20 percent that gives us 80 percent of the value. But, you know, there, there's going to be the flip side of that, which is, you know, 20 percent of where we're going might take 80 percent of our time. And that law is, you know, obviously, you know, pervasive everywhere, but it's, it's just it's something I've learned to live by and trust it because it's never not been true. It's interesting you say that because we're implementing 80-20 in our business and our CEO just had us read a book called The One Thing. I don't know if you've read it. It starts, that book starts with my favorite quote of all time in the Russian proverb that says, uh, he who chases two rabbits catches none. And I, I think that book is fantastic and what they've done with it, right? Which is like, you know, find that one thing that makes everything else easier or unnecessary. And it has been a guidepost to to how I've been trying to organize myself over the last several years. And like as much as I, I've read that book several times and each time, you know, you learn something new, it's just like a treasure trove of how to look at problems differently. So you touched on the the book that you guys would like to write about how I mean, to get better title yeah. done. Right. Hey, I'm all for it, but uh, I, I, I'll tell you some of my book titles later. Uh, really not appropriate. <laughs> we have a forward by Rodney Dangerfield. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Is he still alive? I hope so. I don't think so. Like for, yeah, probably not. So one of the things, uh, you know, in that space where you're figuring it out, and I think this is part of the challenge with, with innovation is, you know, you're not sure you, you've got the pain points. You've done the one thing mentality of like what is that one thing we've got to do so what is it how do you set a vision right because to to give the autonomy to empower people you've got to set a vision right where are we going when are we going when do we think we might get there what are those milestones we're looking for you know what is what is it how do you do that set that vision because i think for you it's a natural thing i think you can do that how can like our listeners learn you know what are some of the things that you do that kind of Freeze your mind from the day to day, the the crisis du jour, the tedium that helps you set that vision. When clearly nobody really knows exactly what's going to happen. Yeah, that question had a lot of good points to it. I, I wish I wrote it down. But you started with saying when you're not sure, right? And 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 being honest to yourself that you have blind spots and honoring the fact that a very valid answer to most questions is is I'm not sure, you know, and let me rephrase it. The, the reason I'm saying that is because that's when you have to believe in your partners and the people that work around you. Like, you know, I, I'm just a 
mad scientist here at Redwood that does, you know, wacky things with technology and process and things like that, right? But like, but more importantly is there's awesome people around me that see my blind spots. And, you know, they, they see the market in a different way. They see our customers in a different way. And listening to their dissent and listening to where they think you're full of it or where you're spot on, right, is sometimes you have to take that gospel when you trust those people, you know, in a way that maybe makes you feel uncomfortable, but you know that they represent a point of view that's different than yours and maybe even more important. So going back to your question, like when you're not sure, how do you get it done? You know, I'm, I'm going to make this up on the spot here, but I think the first thing is to yourself be confident that you've seen the problem enough times, you know, back to mastery in 10,000 hours and knowing the, the problem, right? Like you can feel the problem pretty darn well, but then, you know, when you think you have a solution, start evangelizing it without asking for budget, without asking or saying that this is where we're going to go, but you know, pitching it to customers, getting their feedback, being like, you know, if we had a solution that could weave your, you know, supply chain systems together, would that be helpful? Or, you know, if we had a, you know, a, a way to, you know, uh, get you lunch automatically when we thought you were hungry, right? Like, they see what people think, right? Because you might think that's a great idea. And they're like, well, no, because it doesn't know what I want, right? And you're like, oh, well, that was a silly idea. And so listening to others, over and over you and you do it enough right back to more mastery around it the answer naturally floats to the top and you have to believe in the process of evangelizing socializing letting others evangelize on your behalf that they get it that they see it um, and in fact we're doing that now within the business you know we're, we're pushing a new strategy to kind of reimagine our market positioning here around our technology and our logistics capabilities and um, I've been working on it with, you know, some of our, our, our leadership here and the rest of the organization for, you know, several months now, probably since December. And it is, it, it's just constantly evolving because as we try it out on different segments of the business and starting to try it out externally, we're getting that feedback that sometimes might hurt your ego, but in the end, you're going to have a larger base of people with whom that message resonates. And, you know, I think, you know, so going back to the, I'm not sure part, right. Check your ego at the beginning and listen to what other people say, which can be tough for an innovator, right? You, you love tinkering in the lab and think you have all the answers, but it's, it's bigger than you. It's a great point. And I, and that humility, I think some of it comes with age. I think we talked about this before as well, where it's like, there used to be a lot of pride or, um, I don't know, conceit almost of like, no, I've got the answer where now it's like, I just want to get it right. You know? And to your point of like, I'm going to road test the hell out of all of these ideas, right? I'm going to start. Right, my father's argumenting style is fantastic in that like he started with he just arguing in the Emmons family's in art form, right? We're Irish Catholic. My dad's from Queens. This is, you should see holidays. It's, it's frictionful, right? But like learning how to argue where you put yourself outside of the castle, you've got to fight your way through the moat, into the castle, up the stairs, and then you might be right. As opposed to, I start with the idea that I'm in the castle and you have to fight your way in and taking that, you know, again, contrarian uh, perspective of like, I'm going to assume I'm wrong and I need to find out where. And yeah. these friends that I have that I trust with my ego and, you know, being vulnerable to them and letting them know. What I found really interesting in addition is that idea of like, I think far often too, people, too many people think that leaders have to have the answers, right? 
And that to be a good leader, I have to have all the answers and that I'm not open to other people's ideas and that I have to shout them down because I have the answer. And, and I, you know, with the grace of age I, and the folly of that strategy. Um, but like the, how you bring that up, I think is, it, it's tremendous of like starting out with, I'm not the keeper of the truth here, right? Yeah. And neither is our CEO and neither is our, you know, equity partners, right? Like we're all just humans at the end of the day that, you know, as variables present itself, you know, we aim to make the best decisions, but I can't tell you how many times over the years, you know, someone has just told me, well, just tell me like, what is it, you know, that we're marching towards or where we're going or where we're going from or, and, and, you know, I think to your point, it comes with age earlier in my career. I think I tried too hard to give answers where I thought I, it's what people wanted to hear. And, and as I got older, I realized, you know, the best answer is I don't know, or, you know, you said it earlier, I'm not sure. Right. But I do know that it's North. Right. And I do know, you know, nothing more than my gut or, you know, a highly educated gut, right. Or something of that nature, but like, it's definitely North, but it might not be, but it probably definitely is. Right. And so that's the assumption we're working on. Yeah. That's it's the north. assumption we're working on. And, and right. if we have to pivot, we're going to pivot, but can we all row North together for now? And if it changes, we'll, we'll disseminate that information so that we change course. And that's tough because, you know, I think everyone in their right is fighting their amygdala, right? We've got these super smart, you know, prefrontal cortexes that have evolved to give us answers and innovations and, you know, ideas around what could be. And then, you know, we've got, you know, our caveman brains that are, you know, telling us to fight and panic and worry and have feelings about stuff. And, you know, those, those guys can, can become dangerous. So, you know, it's the more, I think it's an age thing, you know, I think it's, it's a discipline thing to some extent, but yeah, I, I, I agree. You know, if, if you, if you can find a way to lead with ambiguity, you'll, you'll get pretty far. That's awesome. One of the things that I think you guys differentiate on uh, in a lot of ways, but one specifically, I think, you know, your, your organization really engages a lot of the non-tech folks in a lot of the technical solutions, right? So empowering people who know the business, understand the relationships, uh, the nuances, right? And, and you, you, you engage them in a way that they're helping not just be a subject matter expert, but actually helping to develop solutions. I think our listeners would love to hear more about that considering the constraints that we have right now with technical resources who have some of these these additional cultural characteristics. So how do you enable, how do you empower those folks? Yeah. I mean, that's been my MO really here for the the second half of, of, of my career, right? Like the first half um, was building our internal technology and what powers the organization. Um, and, you know, we've obviously grown since then and done some acquisitions and brought in new tech, right? So, so that chapter of, of my life is, is, is a bit, behind me in a great way. We've, we've brought on amazing people who are smarter than me at this stuff. But on, on, the, on, on this side of aiming or arming the, the non-tech staff, you know, you mentioned earlier that 8,000% growth and what was happening. Well, what we were doing is we were onboarding, um, you know, shippers, right? Back to some logistics talk for a second. We were, we were enabling shippers with SaaS-based technology to automate and streamline how they, you know, move their goods across the country, right? So it, it deals with everything. It deals with everything for them automatically or as much as we can automate. 
and the integration patterns, the technical setup, the connectivity between systems started becoming a bottleneck. And it was a bottleneck to that hyper growth, right? As we were onboarding customers to manage their freight or give them technology was how do we connect their systems to our systems fast enough every single time we land a new customer. And so we invested in IT over and over and more people and, you know, more code and, you know, and, and the problem wasn't the code or writing it. The problem was we have people who speak logistics that then talk to our people who speak logistics that then get requirements where the use cases are different every single time because our industry is so fragmented and they end up with, you know, something that is, uh, you know, not all the way there. And this is where 80-20 doesn't work because a bad integration that doesn't work just doesn't work. It's binary. So what we've been trying to do really since 2012, almost nine years now, is let logistics people do full end-to-end integrations where with our drag-and-drop platform, they create API pipelines, they create data transformations, they weave how systems interop together with event-based architecture, with good SDLC built in, uh, automatic versioning of everything, right? Total visibility to all transactions. And they don't know how to write any code, right? They know logistics. And it does all of that for them without even saying any of those words, right? Auto-scaling and all that kind of stuff. It's all just done when they drag and drop. And what that's enabled us to do and, and helped us with our growth trajectory is let people who haven't traditionally been able to deliver technical solutions start delivering it and start making you know innovative changes for our customers where every single integration is different, every solution is different, and they're creating massive value for these companies' logistics networks without being technical and without having to look bad because you know we give it to IT and they miss the requirement. So I guess, you know, it's almost the democratization of innovation, right? Where, where you can let people who speak the language of that business deliver, you know, hyper-powerful tech tools without understanding what they're even delivering under the hood. And then customers are happy. And then they're happy because they're finding purpose and delivering things that they traditionally couldn't, right? And, and that, that's purposeful. And that's, that's fun. And, you know, having seen a lot of the low code platforms, there's way more missteps, mistakes, bad implementations, and there were successful ones from, from my experience, right? I, mathematically, I can't say I know that for a there's fact. There's a rule there somewhere. Yeah. Yeah. There, there, I've seen it enough to say, right? Starting with access databases with an enormous form with 42 different buttons that nobody knows what it does, right? So, uh, dating myself a little bit there. Maybe I built a few. So what? You're you're in good company. <laughs> so what do you what do you what do you think is the, some of the things that you're doing that's making this successful that other people aren't doing? What do you think is the the key to success for you to be able to leverage these types of philosophies and and technologies to enable these folks? What is it? What's some of the magic? Well, I, I think I think one of them is you know the best software is is built by companies that use it themselves. You know, Redwood is is the biggest customer of this platform. And before that, right, you know, when we started 3P Logic and we were doing these integrations, um, we were the customer. We were the pain point. We went through other integration platforms. You know, we went through three to be specific. 
you know, and two other MFT solutions plus like three other homegrown attempts right before we did this one. So um, the short answer is a lot of failures and learned lessons. You know, it's, you know, innovation isn't, you know, sitting in a garage and having that aha moment and then you build Dr. DeLorean and, you know, you're going back to the future. It's a feeling that pain over and over and over and over and over again. And then just saying like, well, I need a solution that eliminates all of these pain points. You know, we didn't even have a name for Redwood Connect before we built it. We called it the I don't know machine, right? Because what are our customers going to send us? I don't know. What do we need to do with it? I don't know what protocol. I don't know what frequency. I don't know. How does it scale? I don't know. Right. And and so we're like, okay, we need to answer all of those problems. And and we did, you know, but it's we wouldn't have gone there had we not hit so many roadblocks and hit so many failures along the way. It's just I think, you know, I'll just make a a blanket statement that I'm sure someone will yell at me about at some point listening to this, but I don't think you can be a good innovator without failing. I just, I just don't. No, I don't think that's a blanket statement. I think that's a truism, right? Every great innovator, entrepreneur I've ever met, uh, one gentleman's story always stuck with me. Uh, Somebody asked, how were you able to create three successful businesses? He said, I started seven. Yeah. Yeah. Right. It's almost like uh, the one hit wonders of uh, music, right? Like it's almost a curse if you get it right the first time, right? With Jordan saying like, if we didn't lose to the Pistons so often, we wouldn't have won six, right? Like there's something about the, pardon my French, the ass kicking that's required. It's required. It's it's cost entry, right? It is. It is. It it builds up your uh, psychological immune system, you know? And I, I think to your point on on, um, on the low code, I think there is a, a lack of commitment of like, we think this is going to be so easy that if it doesn't work the first time, we're going to kind of quit on it, right? Because I do think that's also what I've seen where it's not approaching it as if it's a real product in the first place, but then also not persisting once you realize it ain't free, right? It's low code, right? But it ain't, it's not zero either. It's still going to take effort. You still have to put a lot of effort into it. You got to put a lot of thinking into it, planning. Yeah. Well, the thinking and planning and designing, 100%, right? Like you, you start in Lucidchart and you create some good workflows and you think about what you're going to do right before you do it, right? Measure, measure twice, cut once. But we, we really, you know, I'd say like 80 to 90% of our engagements are zero code. And we've gotten to that point because, you know, you mentioned something in your previous comment and, and it reminded me, which is not only did my team and I fail many times in getting to the point where we knew what we wanted to build, but we wanted to allow this other team that leverages the software to fail quickly and move forward very easily where they build something, press play, nope, not good, press play, nope, not good, press play, there it is, right? And and no compiling, none of that, right? Like you just try it out and all of a sudden you get it to work because um, it's a tinkering machine, right? And then it scales automatically once the traffic starts hitting, right? And so uh, that part of letting people fail as part of the design process, um, you know, I wasn't intending on talking about it, but I think your, your point is, is very strong in that, you know, it, the, the failure permeates through and we have a platform meant for trial and error to get to that optimal solution as quickly as possible. Yeah, a good friend of uh, Shelly and mine, uh, a gentleman by the name of Jim Veselopoulos. It's a, I think to your point of your culture, why you do things, the experimentation, there's a risk reward quotient in every organization. I think the least experimental, the least innovative are the ones who are trying to reduce risk 
to the point you've risked all reward as well. Right. And that, that's something that Jim uh, says all the time. And I always think it's, it's fantastic to remember is if you're driving to zero risk, you're driving to zero reward. And, and I think that is the stasis. We find a lot of organizations who get past that, that part of their life cycle where they're profitable and successful and they're growing and scaling, but they've, they've lost that, that muscle of innovation, that, that ability to take a risk to invest in the opaque, the unknown, right? And then uh, set a vision where you're taking some chances and, and saying to other people, I don't really know. You know, like, I'm not sure. I think, but you know what? And this is the part where I always come back to is like, this is what I think, but I know together we're, we're going to get somewhere good, right? Like, I'm not so never say I got the right answers. I'm saying, like you said, we're headed north. I think we can all agree this is a better future, right? The the Moses story, getting the Israelites out of Egypt, right? We're going to the land of milk and honey. That's good enough, right? Let's hope we don't wander for 40 years. Let's make it like two well, or three. Well, if it's an IT project, it's probably going to go for at least 20 to 30. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> it might be 40. Yeah, that's true. That's true. <laughs> so Eric, we talked we talked earlier about being lucky. So, you know, curious who you've leveraged in your journey so far? Uh, I think the honest answer is is everybody, both who have said, you know, no way you're crazy and those who have who've stood behind me. Um, I, I think some really important things that as an innovator that I've leveraged is, is learning, um, at least for me, the best way to deliver tech, which is, you know, you know, agile methodology, right? And and, you know, there's the manifesto out there and there's the handbooks and there's the religion and the cult side of it, right? But like, you know, a good common sense approach towards, you know, measuring, having accountability, setting good directives, you know, good, good clear objectives for how you break your project down and then sharing that with the team. It's the best way that I've ever seen in terms of how to get everyone to go north. Um, and, and that, you know, was, was taught to me by a former CIO that we had that, that I'm very appreciative for that. Um, I, I think I think our customers um, being honest with with me, you know, I, we mentioned earlier the the feedback, and you know, I, I I tell them what we're thinking about, and you know, they'll call me names or you know, positive or negative, right? And but getting that feedback and having them believe, right, and saying, yeah, I'll I'll, I'll try that out, and you know, trying out some new tech on a you know you know several hundred million dollar supply chain, right, because you know they believe in us, right, and 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 we've built that trust. That's really rewarding, um, and, and that's a that's a great feeling. Um, and then, of course, you know, I've had some some board members um, a- along the way, you know, who have really just wanted to give me good advice. Whether it's uh, again, it's almost as much of what not to do as what to do. You know, when to sit back and relax, even though you want to, you know, jump out of your chair. You know, when to be more aggressive when you think you might want to sit and, and wait it out. You know, and and those are more life lessons on, on you know better ways to play poker and um, just things that are are valuable. Um, that you know, I think Patrick, to your point earlier, as as you age, you you learn a bit more about what's important and and what's not. Um, you know, and and you know to respect your elders because they've they've seen a lot of things. And then overall, you know, I mean, you know, there's there's you know. I think there's the team here, right? So I, I, I'd be remiss if not to say, like, you know, having been here for so long, right? I'm not here because, uh, you know, 
the, the cookies and the condiments in the kitchen are amazing, right? It's it's because it's nice that they are though. It's nice. I don't know how old they are now with the pandemic. They might be from 2019, <laughs> but you know. <laughs> but you know, I, I think I, I think the bigger thing is that um, if you have an environment where it's safe to fail, even though you know, obviously, get out of that rut as quickly as possible. But when people are behind you saying like, hey, you're going to try it out and you have a plan, let's try it. If it doesn't work, we'll obviously have to pivot, but let's do it. Um, And finding that balance and and having people that believe in you and also give you that honest feedback of like, you're crazy, right? Like, what are you thinking? That's really valuable. Um, If everyone's smiling and giving you thumbs up, right? Like you should find new friends. So I I, I, I don't know. I guess guess that's my my answer. (laughs) Well, I appreciate you coming on today. Uh, obviously I think we could go for another three, four hours. So hopefully we'll get you back again. Uh, we can catch up maybe, uh, next year here, how things are going for you and for, uh, your team over there. But, uh, thanks so much for joining us today and and sharing your experience and, and your, your contrarian view, uh, asking for help, being humble, walking in other people's shoes, all really great lessons that I, I don't think a lot of people would expect to hear from a chief innovation officer. But I think it's absolutely the truth, and I think it's why you're successful. I appreciate that. So we also wanted to thank you, our listeners. We really appreciate everyone taking the time to join us today. And if you'd like to receive new episodes as they're published, you can subscribe by visiting our website at dragonspears.com slash podcast, or find us on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. This episode was sponsored by Dragon Spears and produced by Dante32. 